Psalm chapter 5, it says, To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. So, if you remember last week at the little um, subscript right before verse 1, it says, To the choir master with stringed instruments. So, we see stringed instruments used in, in the praise of the Lord. Um, flutes, which are, what are those? Where's Jim? Woodwind, those woodwind? Woodwind instruments. Um, and so, different types of instruments used to praise the Lord. So to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. This was written to be a psalm of praise. Verse 1. Give ear to the word to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Notice that word groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in Wickedness, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Make them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now, as we jump back into our study of the Psalms, I've given you there in your notes a a reminder of what the Psalms are all about. So before I pray, I want us to just just read this little summary statement from Dr. Kendall Easley to remind us uh, how to understand the entire 150 chapters that we call Psalms. Here's what they're about. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion. We're going to see uh, David praising God, calling out to God in a specific occasion. Whatever the occasion, in personal or community life. And so I want us to see the occasion and how David responds in that occasion here in Psalm chapter 5. So let me pray for us tonight. Father, we pause to give you glory. You're worthy of glory. You're worthy of worship. You're worthy of honor. You're worthy of praise, and we just exalt your name tonight. And we pray that you would draw near to us in these moments. Help us, Lord, as we study. Open the eyes of our hearts by your Spirit. And may we, Lord, learn your word and have the wherewithal to apply your word to our lives. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, Psalm 5 is interesting because you see David uh, looking up. Talking to God, praising God, bringing his prayers to God. And then he looks around. Then he looks up, and then he looks around. Or let me say it like this. Uh, In this psalm, David has his thoughts upon the wicked and his eyes upon God. He has his thoughts upon the wicked and his eyes upon God. So when you feel that you are surrounded by wickedness, can anybody relate to that tonight? Can you relate feeling surrounded by wickedness? 
Uh, it's amazing what is going on in our culture today. But, but when you feel yourself surrounded by wickedness and your thoughts are upon the wickedness and the craziness all around you, make sure your eyes are upon God. Because there are some principles that we can learn uh, from this psalm even about how we live for God when we are surrounded by wickedness. That, that's what we're going to look at tonight. How do, you, how do you live for God when you feel like you're surrounded by the ungodly? Now, back to Psalm 5. We're not sure exactly what situation David is referring to here. Almost every segment of David's life, he had enemies. I mean, when he was young, when he was uh, running for his life from Saul, when he became the king later on in his life. I mean, he had all kinds of enemies all throughout his life. And so it's hard to know exactly what period David is talking about here. The Bible doesn't tell us what period, but we know that he feels surrounded. He feels like uh, there are wicked, ungodly people all around him. So in the midst of him thinking about the wicked, uh, the wicked are in his thoughts, his eyes are upon God. And I want to submit to you that as we find ourselves in a rapidly deteriorating culture, as we see the moral decadence of, uh, of a decaying society happen all around us, you and I need to make sure that we fix our eyes upon God. Because He's the only one that can help us. He's the only one that has the answers to all the mess we see around us. And so we're going to learn from David. And what we see specifically emerge in Psalm 5 are three characteristics of the righteous. Three characteristics of the righteous. So how can we be righteous, or what does righteous living look like when we are surrounded by unrighteousness or ungodliness? Well, we'll see that here in this text. So what's the first characteristic of the righteous? Number one, you ready? They pray. They pray. Righteous people pray. Notice what it says there in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. He's saying, God, I'm, I'm coming to you with my concerns, with my needs, and I'm praying, and I'm just asking you to hear me when I pray. I, I need you desperately. And so we learn from this that... People who are righteous people, people that are living for the one true God, living for the glory of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, they are people who pray. Now, there are some prayer principles, like every psalm, that emerge. And I want to just walk you through some things that you and I need to remember as we seek to be people of prayer. So here's the first thing we need to remember. Remember your personal relationship with God. When you pray, remember your personal relationship with God. God. Don't get caught up in rote, memorized prayers where you're just going through the, the motions of uttering words. Remind yourself that when you pray, you are actually talking to someone who, who you have a personal relationship with. And isn't that what Jesus wanted us to remember over in Matthew when he said, when you pray, pray like this. Our, what? Our Father. Who is in heaven. So Jesus taught us to pray. When you pray at the very beginning, remember you're talking to your Father, our Father who is in heaven. And we see the same things here in this text. It says in verse 1 Give ear to my words, O Lord. Now notice there, and we talked about this last week, Lord is spelled with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see Lord in all caps, it refers to the divine name of God, sometimes uh, pronounced as Yahweh. 
And he uses the same name for God in verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. He uses the, the, the same title in verse 6, or the same name in verse 6. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Fast forward to verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. So he keeps calling God by his divine name. This speaks of his relationship. He had a covenant relationship with the one true God. Michael Wilcox says it like this. Yahweh the Lord. The meaning of that name has been established in the days of the Exodus. An almighty saving God whose undeserved love, his grace, rescues and blesses his people. Destroying his enemies as he does so and makes him his own by an unbreakable covenant. It is the entrusting of oneself to this God which is counted for righteousness. And so uh, David is just not using the generic term God. You know, God, if you're out there, would you hear me? No, he's speaking of the specific God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who's revealed himself in the Word, the God who's revealed himself through his Son, Jesus Christ. And so he's using this, 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 tie, this name for God because he has a personal relationship with him. And then look what he says in verse uh, 2. Give attention to the sound of my, my cry, my king and my God. He's not talking to a king or a God. He's talking to He's saying, you're my king, you're my God. This reminds us that David had a personal relationship with God. So when you pray, we just need to remind ourselves, you and I, we need to remind ourselves that we're talking to someone that we know personally. And, and, and because he's our father, because we have a personal relationship with him, he cares about us, right? We need to remind ourselves of that because if we realize we're talking to someone who actually cares about us, it'll change the way we pray. Here's the next thing we need to remember. Remember you are talking to a king. I read Psalm 47 this morning in my quiet time. And it's about God, the king, sitting on his throne. It was awesome. And the same idea is here in verse 2. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God. Remember that when you go into your prayer closet, remember when you're on your knees, remember that you're talking to your father, but you're also talking to a king, right? And if you realize you're talking to a king, that will change the way you pray. There's an old hymn that was written by John Newton, who's uh, most known for writing the hymn Amazing Grace. But in this hymn, he uses these words about prayer. Thou art coming to a king... Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. I like that, don't you? Remember, when you pray, you're coming to a king. You're coming to a king that knows everything. You're coming to a king who is all-powerful. You're coming to a king who has all resources. You're coming to a king who cannot be stopped. You're coming to a king who rules and reigns over the universe. You're coming to a king who simply speaks and things come into existence. There is no request too big for our king to handle, right? So remember when you pray, you're coming to a father who cares and you're coming to a king who can. You're coming to a king that, that, that can meet your needs, that can answer your prayers. And sometimes when I think about that, I think about my own petitions, my own prayer life. Sometimes my prayers can be, can be so... Um, um, I'm trying to think of the right word. Minuscule in relation to who God is. 
Now, do we need to pray for small things? Yes. The Bible tells us to ask and talk to God about our life. He's our Father, right? My kids come talk to me about small things, things that don't really uh, aren't that important in the whole scheme of things, and they bring requests that aren't that important, and I try to meet their needs. So yes, we bring, we bring small things to God because He's our Father, and He cares about the, the intricate details of our lives. But we also need to bring big requests to God because He's a King, right? He's an all-knowing, almighty creator of the universe, sovereign, majestic king. Is your prayer life worthy of a king? Are you bringing big things to God, asking him to move in big ways? Remember, you are talking to a king. Another thing you need to remember is this. Remember, there are different types of prayers. Remember, there are different types of prayers. If you notice here, David uses three types of words for prayer. The first word is words. (laughs) He says in verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Now this is the way that you and I are most familiar uh, with when it comes to praying, where you actually open your mouth and articulate words and talk to God. It's certainly how Jesus taught us to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. And he gives us what? Words to guide our prayers. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not words just to repeat over and over again, but words that serve as a framework for our prayer lives. So we make sure we have the different aspects of the Lord's prayer in our own prayer lives. So we pray using words. And that's how most of us pray. We, we articulate uh, what's on our heart, on our minds, through words to God. We talk to God. But there's another type of, of prayer mentioned here, and it's groanings. Groanings. Just what it said there in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. So this is different than words. Uh, groaning is when you can't get the words out. Groaning is when you're dealing with something so difficult or so catastrophic or so bewildering that... That, that you can't even, you don't even know what to say. You don't even know how to articulate words to, to bring to bear on the situation that you're bringing to God. And, and that's called groanings. And, and guess what? God hears groanings. As a matter of fact, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 26. Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What weakness? Here it is. For we do not know, how, know what to pray for as we ought. And so sometimes we are weak in prayer because we don't know what to say. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to ask. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you don't even know how to pray about it? Raise your hand. It was so catastrophic, so, so difficult, so hard. Um, so gut-wrenching that you couldn't even get words out. You ever been there? Have you ever been there before? If you haven't, you probably will, because life is hard, right? Life is hard. And so, when you can't get the words out, when you're dealing with something that hard, what happens then? Well, it says here, the Spirit helps you. What does He do? Look what it says. He helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself gets involved in the process. I like this. Holy Spirit of God gets involved in the process, interceding 
for us with groanings too deep for words. So here's what happens. When you find yourself in those situations where you don't even know what to say, you, you are so uh, overwhelmed by what's going on in your life, the Holy Spirit of God gets involved in the process. He takes the, the emotions and the desires of your heart And in some way in which we can't fully articulate, he takes those things that are on our heart, on our mind, takes our needs, and he takes them to God on our behalf himself. How awesome is that? When you don't know what to say, the Spirit of God says it for you. How cool is that? Groanings. So if you ever have those moments in life where you're just in a, in a tough spot, you don't know what to pray, how to pray, you're so devastated you don't even know if you can pray. Sometimes if you can just be still before God, maybe crying, maybe weeping, whatever, just know in those moments the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit himself is involved in the process. And in some way which we can't understand, he takes what's on your heart. Takes your needs, takes your concerns, your burdens, and he takes them to God on your behalf in prayer. That's called groanings. Isn't that cool? And so God has us covered when we can articulate the words. God has us covered when we can't articulate the words. Groanings. But there's a third type of prayer that David talks about back in Psalm 5. Cries. Cries. Look what he says in Psalm 5, verse 2. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. So there are times you can you know, form and articulate well-reasoned, logical prayers, talking to God about what's going on in your life. There are times you don't know what to say. And there are times you just don't have time to think about it. There are times when all you can get out is, Help! Right? Help! I have a verse reference there, Matthew 14, 30, and that's the passage when Jesus is uh, walking on the water. Remember that? And one of the disciples sees him walking on the water, and he says, that looks cool, I want to do that. Who was the disciple? Peter, right? And he says, I, I want to walk on the water. So what does Jesus say to him? What's he say? Come on, Peter. So Peter gets out of the boat, and boy, one of the... This is one of those events I would have loved to have been there and seen. Peter gets out of the boat, and for a moment, he's actually walking on the water. God suspends the laws of nature for Peter, so he's actually walking on the water. By the way, do you think he ever tried that again? You're thinking, with no one's around looking. He's walking on the water, and what happens next? Takes his eyes off Jesus, he, the, the waves, the, the, the wind, and, and he gets scared because he's like, I'm walking on the water and I'm in the middle of a storm. And so what happens when he takes his eyes off Jesus? Begins to sink, and then what's he say? Remember, remember what he says? Save me, Lord, right? He didn't have time for a, you know, 10-minute devotional. He didn't have time for a quiet time, right? It was, save me, Lord. And Jesus did. But that's a good example of those kind of prayers where we just, we just have to cry out sometimes. And guess what? God loves it when we do that. He expects us to do that. 
And so David is, is familiar with all different types of prayer. He knows what it's like to have time with God, articulating what's on his heart and his mind. He knows what it's like to be in such a devastating situation that he can't even find the words, groanings. And he knows what it's like to be in a, a, a very difficult situation and just cry out. And there are three different words here used. So remember, there are different types of prayer that different situations call for in our lives. But then... Remember this. Remember that God answers prayer. Now, if I asked you before the study, if I asked you, hey, do you believe that God answers prayer? You would, you would probably all say, amen. Yeah, I believe that. But my question is, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that God answers prayer? Do we have that confidence when we come to Him? Because if we do, it'll change the way we pray, won't it? We'll begin to ask him for things and, and, and look for his answers and expect his answers. And so, remember that God answers prayer. Look what he says in verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. In other words, I'm crying out, I'm groaning, I'm praying, I'm talking, I'm using words. And God, I'm watching to see what you're going to do. He's expecting God to answer. So remember that God answers prayer. Some great, great pointers on prayer. So, what do righteous people do? People that are right with God, what do they do? They pray. That's, one of the, that's something that should be very natural for someone that has a relationship with God. We now have the opportunity to come into the presence of the God of the universe and bring our request to Him. It says over in Hebrews 4 that we are to draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in times of need. Hebrews 10 says, because we have a great high priest named Jesus who shed His blood on the cross to wash away our sins, now the veil has been torn in two. We can go into the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies. Therefore, Hebrews 10 says, listen, let us draw near. You can go into God's presence anytime you want to and say as long as you want to. So because that privilege is available through the blood of Christ, let us draw near, right? And so righteous people pray. That's what what the people of God do. They pray. Number two, the righteous. They recognize sin as sin. They recognize sin as sin. Notice the different descriptions of the ungodly in this passage. So, verses 1 through 3, David is saying, God, I'm crying out to you. I need your help. I'm watching for your answer. Then in verse 4, he, he begins to look around at the situation. begins to look around at the, the wicked that were surrounding him. And he begins to talk to God about them. And look what he says about them. He uses different descriptions of the ungodly. First of all, he uses the description, wicked. He says in verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. He calls the the ungodly behavior of those uh, around him wickedness. Not an oops, not not a stumble, not a mistake. Wickedness, because they are in settled opposition to God. They know what God says, and they, they are living with a posture that says, We don't care what God says. These are the kind of people he's referring to. He calls it wickedness. Then he calls them boastful. Look what it says in verse 5. 
He says, you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. These are people that have turned their back to God because they don't think they need God. And they think they can accomplish life on their own. And they think they can live by their own strength and their own wits. And he calls them boastful. And the Bible says in Proverbs that pride goes before destruction. Pride is a very, very dangerous characteristic to, to live to live out. And then he calls them evildoers in verse 5. Pulling no punches. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You hate all evildoers. Then he calls them those who speak lies. Look in verse 6. You destroy those who speak lies. Speaking of people that live by deceit. One of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. Over in Proverbs, there's a passage that speaks of the things that God hates. And in that passage, two times it says, God hates deceitful people. He hates deceit. He hates lying. So he calls them those who speak lies. Then he calls them bloodthirsty, verse 6. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty. These are people that have no regard for others. They don't care about harming other people to accomplish their own agenda in life. And, and, and they're bloodthirsty. They're harmful to others. And then he calls them deceitful, verse 6. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And so David is calling sin, sin. And he's being honest about the, the condition of these people, these ungodly folks that were surrounding him. He calls them wicked and evildoers and deceitful and, and, and all these different descriptors because that's the kind of lives they were living. He calls sin, sin. Hey, by the way, everybody look at me for a minute. This is, this is important. If you see someone in your life that is involved in destructive sin, they've turned their back to God, they're going their own way, you are doing them a great service by speaking truth into their life. Maybe uncomfortable, but they need to hear truth. And if you wink at it and just and just don't speak truth into that situation, listen, you are doing them a great disservice. Right? So when we look at, at, at people in our culture that are broken by sin, we're not doing them favors by not calling sin, sin. We're doing folks a great disservice. For example, when you go to a doctor and you have an ailment, do you want them to say, oh, you're okay? Or if you have an ailment, do you want them to let you know what the ailment is so it can start getting fixed? Right? I mean, you wouldn't retain a doctor or go back to a doctor that just lies to you and said everything's okay if you're not okay, right? We want to know the deal so we can seek treatment and seek healing. And, and if we just look at a, at a disintegrating culture and say, oh, it's okay, you're okay, that's not a sin, we're doing them a great disservice because they don't understand the issue, they don't understand what God's Word says about their decisions, they're going to head down that pathway that ends in destruction. And so David here is calling sin, sin. He's being very real about how their lifestyle matches up to God's truth. But then notice how God views sin. 
There are several principles here about how God views sin. Look what it says in verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. So, we learn from that, God does not take pleasure in evil. I mean, we already knew that, but he says it here. God doesn't take pleasure in evil. He doesn't delight in wickedness. He, 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 he despises wickedness because he knows the consequences of that wickedness. God will not allow unforgiven evil in his presence. Look what it says in verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. That's why we need a Savior. More on that in a few minutes. Because we've all blown it. Everyone in this room's blown it. Can I get an amen? Okay? And if you didn't just amen me, then you're not honest about your own issues, and you're deceiving yourself, and that's a sin. So you just blew it, all right? We've all blown it. Every one of us. Every one of us has blown it. We've all sinned against God. And so here's the deal. Uh, if that sin has not been forgiven, washed away from our life, then we'll, we'll never be in the presence of God. He does not allow unforgiven, un, unredeemed people in his presence. And it says, God hates evildoers. Look what it says in verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. Verse 6, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute on that one. Because how many of you ever heard the phrase, God hates the sin but loves the sinner? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Raise your hand if you've said that before. Okay, notice my hand's raised. Now, is that true? The answer is yes. God hates sin. He loves the sinner. But there's also an aspect in the character and nature of God where because He is holy, he has, to, he has to bring His condemnation to bear on those who are living in evil. Matter of fact, over in John 3, Jesus told us, He said, listen, those that aren't, aren't saved, those that don't believe in me, they're living under condemnation now. It's not that they're waiting to get to condemnation when they die. They're already under condemnation. And you need me to save you so you can come out from under condemnation. And so because God is holy, his, his opposition, his judgment against sin is resting over an ungodly person's life. So in that sense, he hates the sin and the person doing it. They are living under his judgment. But he also loves them, so he offers them Forgiveness. He offers them eternal life. Warren Wiersbe says it like this, and I thought this was interesting. He says, God's hatred of evildoers is not emotional hatred, like, I hate you. It's not, it's not that. His hatred of evildoers is judicial. It speaks of his, his settled opposition as a holy God against those who embrace sin in their lives. And so, according to the Bible, God hates evildoers. And according to the Bible, God loves evildoers. Is that a contradiction? No. No. Uh, it's just God's grace that he extends that opportunity for forgiveness to evildoers. And here's the next thing. God will destroy evildoers. Look what it says in verse 6. You destroy those who speak lies. And so, again, someone who is living apart from God's salvation apart from the salvation that only Jesus Christ can give, is under condemnation. And if they die in that condition, they will spend eternity under condemnation. They will spend eternity in that awful place called hell, separated from God, in conscious 
torment for their sins. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus taught about hell. Very, very clear. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, that's the end of wickedness. That's where people are headed. It's destruction. And so in this, in this text, as David prays and as he looks around at the society, the culture, he understands there's evil all around him. And he calls sin, sin. Now listen to these quotes. James Montgomery Boyce says this, This is a good way to measure how well you are praying and whether as you pray you are drawing close to God or are merely mouthing words. If you are drawing close to God, you will become increasingly sensitive to sin, which is inevitable since the God you are approaching is a holy God. Warren Wiersbe says, We don't hate sin enough to get upset at the wickedness and godlessness around us. Bombarded as we are by so much media evil and violence, we've gotten accustomed to the darkness. We've become desensitized to sin, right? But notice, as David draws near to a holy God, it makes him more sensitive to the evil all around him. Can I submit to you this? As we live in a rapidly decaying culture, we need to make sure we are drawing near to a holy God so that we'll see sin for what it is. It's sin. We've gotten, as a church, as, as, as Christians in America, we've gotten too comfortable with darkness, haven't we? It's interesting, this, this past week, uh, a sitcom came out, which is a reboot of, a, of an older sitcom that Claire and I watched when we were kids. And, and um, the sitcom that we remember growing up was family-friendly and funny. And, and so we said, we're going to watch this new reboot of this new sitcom with our kids, and you know, because it's the same characters are on there. They're older now with their same characters. And, and we, we turned it on and had our kids gather around, and we could not believe, we couldn't believe it. Not the same, it's not your same old 80s sitcom that we remember that was family friendly. I mean, it, it, it had some, some stuff in it, and, and, and it's, just, it's just a reflection of our culture. It is just a reflection of where our culture is. And so we got to stay close to God. Pray, talk to Him, because people that are righteous, people that are living for the glory of God, recognize sin as sin. David does here. Okay, one, one more thing here. Actually, two more things. There are four characteristics. I have three. So mark out three and put four. All right? Obviously, I was studying, and I had three, but then I added another one. So, number three, third characteristic of the righteous. In light of God's mercy, they worship. In light of God's mercy... Righteous people worship. Now notice what it says there in verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So act of worship. I'm going to spend some time uh, offering you a sacrifice according to the sacrificial system uh, that God laid out for the people of Israel. You say, wait, we don't have a sacrificial system anymore. Well, the Bible speaks of, ac- of offering a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, offering our own, our own lives as a sacrifice, uh, Romans 12, 2. And so we can, we can, as an act of worship, say, God, here's my life, it's yours. Would you use me for how you want to use me? And, 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 and we see the worship happening here in this passage. Now, here's an important principle I want you to see about righteous people. Okay? The righteous are not better than the wicked. They have simply received God's mercy. That's so important. The righteous are not better than the wicked. 
They have simply received God's mercy. Did you notice what David said in verse 4? Evil may not dwell with you. Now that's a problem for Wade Humphreys because I've done some evil stuff in my life. How about you? Am I the only sinner in the room? I'm, okay, Not alone? Okay, alright. And so, how do you deal with that? Evil cannot dwell with God. And I've done evil, right? Matter of fact, the Bible says my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. The Bible says all have sinned. Falling short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. So that's a problem. Look at the answer to the problem in verse 7. But I, David says, through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. That word steadfast love is the word kesed, the Hebrew word kesed. It carries with the idea, it's kind of like love and mercy and grace rolled into one word. It's a beautiful word. And the ESV translates it, steadfast love. Grace doesn't quite capture it by itself. Mercy doesn't quite capture it by itself. Uh, Love doesn't quite capture it by itself. Some translations use loving kindness. There's just so much wrapped up in this word. Uh, Steadfast love. But here's what he's saying. Because of your steadfast love, I'm a worshiper. Not because I'm good, but because I've received your love. I've been changed by your love. I've received your forgiveness. You've made me good. And so... The righteous are not better than the wicked. They have simply received God's mercy. It is by the mercy of God, J.M. Boyce writes, alone that any human being may approach him. If, If you're a believer in Christ and you are living a righteous life, walking with God, it's not because you're good and just figured it out. It's because of God's mercy in your life. Amen? Because of God's mercy. And I've said this to you before. Listen, if you ever see anything good happening from Wade Humphreys, if you ever see me have a good moment in ministry or as a dad or as a husband or as a friend or whatever, if you ever see something good happening in Wade Humphreys, it's, it's not because I'm just better than other folks. It's because of God's grace working in my life. So we can't look down at others, right? Because the only reason that we're righteous is because God has made us righteous by His grace. He's given us the gift of righteousness, the righteousness of His Son, imputed righteousness. Let me talk about righteousness just for a moment. Uh, The Bible speaks of imputed righteousness, which means that the righteousness that Jesus earned, He gave to you as a gift. So when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His Son. So now you have a right standing with God, right? That's called imputed righteousness. That's the, the theological term. And I had a great illustration I heard a great illustration of this this past week. Uh, my, my boys are in the center shot ministry that just started, which is an archery ministry for our kids. And it's filled up, and we'll do another one in, um, in the fall. So if your, your uh, child wasn't able to be in it, they can be in it in the fall session. But it's really cool. They go in there, and we have the bows and arrows and the targets, and we have some great volunteers, some men in there teaching them how to shoot, uh, you know, teach them the basis of archery. But there's always a devotion that accompanies it, and Kevin's in there and leads the devotion. And here's the devotion they had recently. Uh, they talked about sin. Uh, the word sin literally means to miss the mark. It's what the Hebrew word sin means. It means to fall short of perfection, Okay. So if we related our life to archery, we've all missed the mark. No one's hit a bullseye. Can I get an amen? That's called sin. We've all missed the mark. But then they said in this devotion, and my boys were telling me about it, they said Jesus had a perfect score. He, during his life on this earth, he hit the bullseye 
and was perfect. And what he did is he gave us his perfect score. Isn't that a good illustration? That's imputed righteousness. That's what it is. Jesus has a perfect score. He earned it by living a perfect life, and he gave it to us as a gift when we got saved. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's imputed righteousness. So that's our our position before God. That's how he sees us in the righteousness of his son. But there's another aspect of righteousness. It's called imparted righteousness. This isn't in your notes. This is extra. This is free. Imparted righteousness is the work of the Spirit to bring your practice into conformity with your position. In other words, the Holy Spirit begins to help you to live more like Jesus. Does that make sense? It's called imparted righteousness. He's he's giving you the, the wherewithal to grow in righteousness. So listen, whether you're talking about imputed righteousness or imparted righteousness, it's all a gift of God. We don't deserve any of it. And David understands The only reason I'm a worshiper of the one true God is because of his mercy. So here's what this does. This keeps us from looking down on folks that aren't where we are, right? Looking down our noses at folks that are living in brokenness and evil. Yes, we call sin, sin, but we don't look down on them like we don't have any sin, right? We understand, hey, I'm a product of God's mercy and they need God's mercy. And let me tell you how you can receive God's mercy and find the same hope and peace and joy and transformation that I've found. That's, that's what we're called to do. So the righteous are not better than the wicked. They simply receive God's mercy. David gets that. I'm going to come worship God, but it's in accordance with your steadfast love. It's in accordance with your kessed, your mercy, your grace. Here's the next thing. This psalm, I'm talking about worship, Models personal worship. Verse 3, he says, I get up in the morning, I sacrifice for, uh, for you, and I watch. He's talking about his own personal worship. And I believe that God wants us, the Bible teaches that, he, that God wants us individually to worship him. We should spend time with God on a daily basis where we are worshiping him. That's how Jesus taught us to pray, remember? He, here's how you begin your prayers. Our Father who is in heaven, what's the next phrase? Hallowed be your name. So right near the beginning of our prayer time, we should be praising God, shouldn't we? Hallowed be your name. Just praising him for who he is, what he's done for you. Uh, praising That's personal worship. And this psalm also models corporate worship. Verse 7, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. So talking about going to the temple where God's people gather and worshiping in a corporate setting. So the application for us would be, or the parallel with us would be, gathering in the local church, the assembly of believers, to worship together. All right? Now, a couple of thoughts about that. Number one, if you worship God personally, your corporate worship is going to be more dynamic and more meaningful. If you just listen to me, if you ignore God all week long, and show up on Sunday and act like you're going to have this meaningful worship time, probably just not going to happen. Right? And you've heard me use this illustration before, but, but think about how that would go with any other type of relationship. I mean, what if I told Claire, hey, Claire, on Sundays you got my attention for an hour, hour, 15 minutes, all right? I'm going to tell you how great you are, going to spend some time with you, but after that I'm going to ignore you. Monday through Saturday, we're not talking at all. I don't have a thing to do with you, Claire. But hey, next Sunday, I'll be back. And I'm going to tell you how much I love you. Now, how would that go in a marriage? Not so well, right? 
I'd be a terrible husband if I did that. It'd be terrible. Well, listen to me. That's how a lot of us treat God. We ignore Him Monday through Saturday. Then we come traipsing into worship, right? Singing our songs. and what, is, what do you think God thinks about that? If you listen to me, if you will learn to worship God personally, it will make your corporate worship time more meaningful. I promise you. Try it out. Spend some time this week in the Word, on your knees. And I bet that when you get here on Sunday, you will be excited. You can't wait to sing praises of God. You'll be on the edge of your seat waiting to learn more about God's Word. Not because of who the preacher is, but because of Jesus and His Word. And the power, life-changing power of His Word. And so, this psalm models personal worship and, and, and corporate Worship. And by the way, another little comment about corporate worship. Um, there's just nothing like it. There, this world cannot mimic the dynamic that occurs when redeemed people get together and lift up the name of Jesus. There's just nothing like it. Sunday mornings are absolutely my favorite time of the week. There, there's, no, there's nothing that can match for me the excitement and the, the joy and the fulfillment of that moment of getting with God's people, lifting up Jesus' name, digging deep into His Word, loving each other, encouraging each other. There, I mean, there's just nothing like it. And so you have people say, well, I, I can worship God on a lake, on a bass boat. Well, praise the Lord. Yeah, sure you can. I hope you can. I love to go out on a bass boat and and worship in creation. I can worship God on a deer stand. Well, of course you can. You should worship God on a deer stand. But I'm telling you, there is nothing like getting together with God's people. And and I listen, I just can't wrap my mind around people that are not sick and not out of town on business or vacation, that they don't have that desire, call themselves Christians, and they don't have that desire to just get with God's people and lift up the name of Jesus. I, can't, I, can't, I just can't wrap my mind around that. Matter of fact, there's no biblical category for that. You don't find this category of Christian that says, well, you know, I need my Sundays to sleep in or whatever. Listen, there is nothing like gathering with God's people. There's nothing the world can offer. Nothing the world can offer. Broadway plays... Movies, television, websites, Disney World. I've been to Disney World recently. Hey, it's fun. Nothing like getting with God's people. Nothing. And so the psalmist here is saying, I, I worship personally and I worship corporately. And then he says, I worship joyfully. This, this psalm models joyful worship. Look in verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So David's saying, hey, I look around and I see wickedness. And I understand that I've been made righteous by God's kessed, by his mercy, by his grace, by his love. I know that I've taken refuge under the shadow of his wings. And I am his precious possession. I belong to him now. He will watch over me. And that thought of being redeemed in the midst of such wickedness brings me great joy. That's what he's saying there. And so when you look around at what's happening in our culture, 
And then you look at your own personal relationship with God. Be grateful that in the midst of the craziness, you have a relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ. Joy. The psalm models joyful worship. And then number four, very quickly, the fourth characteristic of the righteous. They pray, they recognize sin as sin in light of God's mercy. They worship, but fourth, they desire the righteous path. Look what he says in verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. And so he's saying, hey, you've already given me imputed righteousness. You've made me right with you. You've given it to me as a gift. You gave me your perfect score. And now I want to start living like a righteous person. So will you impart your righteousness to me? Will you lead me so that I can live a righteous life? That's what he's saying there. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Same thing that David says over in Psalm 23. He says to the Lord, his shepherd, that he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so, we should desire righteous lives so he will be pleased with our lives. I like what P.C. Craigie writes. The prayer in Psalm 5 is not only for protection from wicked persons, but also a prayer for protection from becoming like them. So as David looks around at the ungodly, saying, I don't want to be like them. I'm yours. So instead of allowing me to live an ungodly life, lead me in the right path, the righteous path. Righteous people desire the righteous path. They want to do the right thing. They want to live the right life so that they can please God. Let me close by turning uh, over to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, and we'll be through. I'll take some questions if you have any. I love this verse. Paul writing, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to what? To please Him. So why should we desire to live a righteous life, to take the righteous path, to be led in the righteous path, so that we can please Him? Right? Isn't that simple? We can please Him. If you want to please God, you want Him to lead you in the right way, in the right path. And so Paul says, we make it our aim to please Him. Let me ask you a question real quick. What's your aim been this week? Has your aim been to please Him? Has your aim been to just make it to the weekend? Has your aim been to just kind of muddle through? Has your aim been just to keep your head above water? What's your aim been this week? Paul says, my aim is to please Him. That was David's aim as well. That's the aim of the righteous. They want to please him. So, next time you find yourself concerned about a decaying culture, just read Psalm 5 and just look at this example of David. Yes, he was thinking about the wicked. He was thinking about the ungodliness going on all around him. But where were his eyes? His eyes were upon the Lord. And I tell you what we're learning in our culture today we're learning that political parties aren't the answer. Amen? We're learning that we better fix our eyes upon Him. He's the only one that can fix what's happening in our culture today.